for my tender heart in a blender watch it spin round to a beautiful oblivion rendezvous then i'm through with you hey guys i'm andrea dominic and i'm emily friedlander you're listening to the culture journalist a podcast about culture in the age of platforms so if you've been alive since the late 90s, chances are you've heard of that song that we just played, which is, of course, 1998's ubiquitous chart topper, Inside Out. AKA the Heart in a Blender song, off of the platinum self-titled debut album by Southern California alt-rock giants Eve Six. I, for one, have fond memories of rocking out to it in the back of my mom's Volvo while she and my grandma dragged me yard sale hunting on the weekends. I can still remember the sheer thrill I felt when singer Max Collins' opening verse came on over the airwaves of LA's erstwhile radio station, Star 98.7. And then, of course, there's 2000's Here's to the Night, which would go on to soundtrack every graduation, goodbye party, and preemptively nostalgic moment of my youth. Or, for me, lazy days watching MTV2 after school, or weekend trips to the mall. But over the last year and a half, Eve 6 has been back in the zeitgeist, though not for the reasons you'd expect. If you're on music Twitter at all, you probably know what we're talking about. The band's Twitter went viral in late 2020 when, seemingly out of nowhere, singer and guitarist Max Collins began serving up prolific unfiltered, and hilarious takes. Offerings range from cold-tweeting politicians to ask them if they, quote, like the heart in a blender song, to razzing other late 90s rock stars. We're looking at you, Stephen Jenkins and Steve Albini. To thoughtful commentary on everything from fair pay to musicians, to the state of journalism, to roasting the centrist Dems. It's been an unlikely hit, and in addition to releasing new music with Eve Six, Max also now pens an advice column with Input Mag and has become something of a rock and roll post-Bernie public intellectual. We've been wanting to interview him for a long time, but we recently found the perfect excuse. Max and I both wrote an article about John Hinckley, the sexagenarian singer-songwriter who attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan in the 1980s in a bid to impress the actor Jodie Foster. He wounded four people and was eventually found not guilty for reason of insanity. On July 15, Hinckley finally became a free man after over four decades of restrictions and court-mandated psychiatric care. Max, who as it turns out is a big fan of Hinckley's music, managed to land the first ever interview he did following his unconditional release. Around this time, Emily also got commissioned to write an essay about the cult fandom around Hinckley and his stripped-down romantic folk songs, which have garnered him nearly 30,000 subscribers on YouTube. I have come so very far. I finally passed the she wanted to examine the fascination with Hinckley's music in the context of the complicated legacy of the category of, quote, outsider music a term popularized by WFMU DJ Erwin Chusid in the early 2000s to describe largely self-taught musicians with unusual backstories and even psychological disabilities who are creating music outside the bounds of the traditional music industry. 
Think Daniel Johnston, The Shags, Wesley Willis. It's basically the music equivalent of the equally othering category of outsider art. A planned series of tour dates Hinckley booked this summer sparked a bunch of controversy online, especially after the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute released a statement condemning his return to the stage. After the shows got canceled, the piece evolved into an exploration of how the long-running Brooklyn DIY venue Market Hotel, one of the stops on Hinckley's so-called redemption tour, became a target for the conservative media outrage machine exemplifying the right's increasing embrace of the very same cancel culture tactics it loves to accuse the left of using. What does the controversy around Hinckley's foray into live music tell us about the state of discourse? Is there such a thing as forgiveness and redemption in the middle of the culture war? And how in the world did Eve Six, a band we all grew up watching on MTV, end up re-entering the chat as one of the funniest and most influential voices on left-wing Twitter? Much like his column, Max is a generous and thoughtful conversationalist and was kind enough to indulge our extremely long list of questions. Along the way, he also got deep about some of his own experiences with mental health, including navigating a form of OCD, and why maybe the appeal of so-called outsider music is that we all feel a little bit like outsiders ourselves sometimes. We'll be right back with Eve Six Journalist after the break. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. We are here with the one and only Max Collins of Eve Six, aka Heart in a Blender Guy, also a writer and a Twitter personality you might be familiar with. Max, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you recently, somewhat recently, started writing an advice column for Input Mag. How, how did you end up doing that and what drew you to that format in particular? Well, it kind of came about, <laughs> so John Hinckley, and I think we were going to probably talk about him in a moment, but it sort of connects to how the column happened. Wow, I didn't expect that. He, he did a tweet a while back, I think it was around the end of last year, where he said, some bands I've been listening to, and then he listed the bands that he, he was listening to. and. Among them was Eve Six, which was pretty wild. And I replied to that tweet and said, let's do a song together, John. Didn't hear back from him, but Mark Yarm, the editor at Input, messaged me. And I, I had done an interview with Mark a few months prior and stuff. We kind of knew each other. And he said, I'll commission you to interview John Hinckley for Input, uh, if you could make that happen. So. Yeah, I can't remember how I learned that he wasn't able to do press or whatever, but I did. It became clear that we weren't going to be able to do an interview with John. And I said it would be cool to do something else with you, though, with the magazine. And he was like, what do you have in mind? And I kind of half jokingly said, what about an advice column? And he, he, he replied, I'm actually you know, in an input meeting right now. And I just brought that up and everyone thinks it's a good idea. And 
I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's do it. And that's kind of how it came about. So how's it been? What are your thoughts on working in the media industry so far? And from what you've experienced, uh, better or worse than working in the music industry? <laughs> I, I really enjoy doing this column. Like I, I really do. And I, when I first lobbed the idea out there, I, like I said, it was like sort of a half joke, half baked thing in my mind. I didn't know what that would necessarily look like, but I'm really enjoying it. It's kind of a challenge, but it's also fun and it's making me kind of, you know, look inward and dig deep in places. And I've actually found myself since starting to write this thing, kind of taking my own advice in certain situations, like kind of hearing myself say these things that I know to be true, but that, you know, I don't always practically apply has actually been just helpful for me and kind of day-to-day -day living a little bit, I think. Yeah, like for example? Th there have been a lot of questions around like, you know, depression, anxiety. And like, I, I'm a sober guy. I've been sober for a really long time. I also have this really weird type of OCD called like inadvertent harm OCD. And so I, I've done a lot of therapy for that, that converges with like mindfulness stuff. So I find myself drawing on a lot of that work, work that I've done in programs that must remain nameless at the le level of press, radio, and film, and this OCD therapy stuff, mindfulness stuff, this really weird book called A Course in Miracles that was really helpful to me in early sobriety but that I haven't picked up in a while. I found myself like recalling some of that stuff for the column. I think it's the mindfulness stuff because that comes up a lot. So when I catch myself getting tempted to like identify with certain thoughts or feeling patterns, it's like, oh, I just told this person this. So why don't you not be a hypocrite <laughs> and take your own advice and observe your mind right now instead of identifying with the thoughts that are moving through it. Yeah, it seems like almost on like a meta level, the practice of writing the advice column is is unto itself an act of mindfulness, you know? Yeah. Like it's forcing you to like look at the thing and be present with it and remember in a way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so too. It sort of feels like a written form of conversations that I'll have with close friends. There's something kind of intimate about it, but it, I'm also talking to strangers. But people seem to dig it and find it helpful, which feels really good. I mean, that part really feels mm. gratifying, you know? Totally. What you said before about, like, learning to sit with your thoughts and just be with them. I used to have OCD as a kid, and I can totally see how that approach would be really helpful. Yeah, it was pretty revelatory to me, like getting into the OCD therapy stuff, both like the behavioral side and the mindfulness side, but just being so used to, yeah, identifying with these thoughts that are oftentimes pathological, like I am them and they are me. And it's like, well, no, they're not. I, I, I can take this like observational kind of posture and 
discover a sense of self that's deeper and not be at the whims of them, not, not have thoughts like that have to dictate my behavior, make me do or not do anything, but I can like observe them and do what I value regardless of the thoughts that are in my head. That was the revelatory part. Like I'm better able to act in spite of my thoughts and do the things that I value regardless of what my thoughts are when I recognize that my thoughts aren't me, you know? I don't know if I'm making sense. No, no, it does. It does make sense. I think when I was a kid and I, I like found my way kind of out of it myself without being like that assisted by like a therapist or anything, I just sort of like figured out what worked and it was through kind of like just sitting with the intrusive thought or the upsetting thought or whatever, but then like not doing the thing the thought was telling me to do and just being like, this thought is here. It is okay, basically. Yeah. It eventually made the thought stop coming. Yes, exactly. Allowing the thought to be there instead of resisting it. Because in resisting it, you're kind of like endowing it with like a, a power and a value that it doesn't intrinsically have. You're making it more real by trying to like will it away. So like I got, I got sober in 06 and I didn't start getting therapy for OCD until like three years later. And in those first few years of my sobriety, I was like at my craziest. And basically what, what got me to like go to therapy, which was something I was terrified of. I don't know. I thought they would just confirm my worst fears about myself or something like that. But I, I would be driving my car and I would like hear a sound on the road. It could be like going over a reflector light or hearing someone shut a car door as I drove by. And I would have the thought, what if I just hit someone with my car, but I didn't know it. And I would, I would check, I, I, I would turn my car around and like drive past the place where I heard the sound and make sure that I didn't see any bodies on the road. And that started to happen more and more frequently. And the checking started to get more and more weird and like scary. I'd be stopping my car in the middle of busy street in the middle of traffic and looking under my car for dead bodies, like really crazy. And so it got to the point where it just wasn't worth driving anymore. Cause like the anxiety was so great and it dawned on me that I was like bordering on agoraphobia. I guess it wasn't that really, but I was unable to like do the shit that I needed to do. And that's when I was just like, okay, fuck it. I'm going to try this therapy thing. And like one of the books that was given to me had talked specifically about hit and run OCD. Like this was a thing that existed that other people dealt with. And I ended up doing group therapy with other people who had hit and run OCD. And the mindfulness concepts were introduced to me then and acting in spite of thoughts and feelings, allowing them to be there, not resisting them. That's where I got all of that information that like literally changed, changed my life. It's, it's ironic because one of the most common ways that I hear 
mindfulness, at least in like my experience, that like mindfulness practices and like observation of thoughts has been described as like treat it like a car just driving by you that you're noticing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, a little different in this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little different. Yeah. It was crazy. I mean, the behavioral part of it was like, you know, you don't check, like you hear the sound and you allow the thought and its attendant feeling, which is just straight up fight or flight, you know, panic, you allow that to be there and you keep driving and, you know, driving with the radio turned up loudly or the windows up or the windows down, depending on which one was scarier. So it's sort of like going toward the thing that scares you most writing these scripts where you you write down basically the worst case scenario of the fear and then read it over and over again it's so counterintuitive and strange and kind of scary to do but like you can't argue with the results you know it really really works totally i had a thing where it was actually kind of similar to that where it was like I was afraid that if I didn't do some ritual, that harm would befall somebody else. Mm -hmm. So it was less like retrospective and more like if I don't do this like strange, like knocking on the wall before I leave the house, something bad will happen to my loved ones. And then you have to stop doing that and then see what happens. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had one OCD therapist tell me, she said, embrace your inner sociopath. She straight up said that like... And <laughs> And it was really helpful because the fear at its most visceral, you know, would last for, I don't know, five to 10 minutes or something like that. So it was like, whatever I could use to get me through those five to 10 minutes and driving down the street, hearing a sound that any other normal person driving a car wouldn't even notice. But to me, it made those what if thoughts jump in, it would be like, no, embrace your inner, inner sociopath. Maybe you did. Maybe there is someone lying dead in the road. You're going to keep driving. Yeah. It's such a complicated condition to have. And it doesn't always like automatically make sense to people who haven't experienced themselves. And like sometimes the prescriptions are different than you would imagine. But I'm so glad that you found a way through. How did you find your way through? Was it therapy or was it just discovering that if you didn't give in to like the dictates of the thing that it it eased up if, i don't think it was therapy it was like because i did go to a therapist but they didn't even really like pick up on it that much maybe i read something about it and then i just decided to try something and it worked i was only like 14 or something but somehow figured something out that's awesome yeah. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Another car analogy. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's crazy to hear that your advice column came about kind of indirectly as a result of John Hinckley. And you just released your interview with him. And I know there's a lot to talk about there and in terms of mental health. So... Yeah, like we've seen a lot of interviews come out with John Hinckley since his unconditional release. I'm assuming that he wasn't able to talk when you first reached out to him, but then he was because he had the restrictions lifted. But yours was actually the first. Can you tell us about your relationship with his music and what drew you to interviewing him? Yeah, 
I put his music on for the first time when we were in Atlanta on this last tour that we did in like May. And I was moved by it. You know, I was also impressed by like the way that it sounds for what I would imagine were like, you know, limited resources that he had at his disposal. I don't know. There was just like a kind of warmth to it and a disarming kind of like honesty in the songs and the recording. And yeah, it immediately kind of went to my heart muscle. I was moved by the songs, which is what makes him interesting to me. It would be a lie to say that it, it's, it's not interesting that he attempted to assassinate a president, but it's the juxtaposition of the two. The fact that he writes these really simple language of the heart songs, and he's the guy who's known primarily for doing what he did is what really makes him compelling to me because, you know, John Hinckley wasn't like some activist or anything like that. He was a guy with like a host of then undiagnosed problems, but he spent the last, what, 40 years or something getting help and getting better. He still, he still has the mental diagnosis he has, but he's done a lot of work on himself. And I think that what he's doing, the music that he's making is good. And I think he should be able to make it. And I think he should be able to, you know, play shows and put music out. And I know that some people find that offensive, but that's sort of the way that I see it. Yeah. I want to read just from your piece, like a really nice quote that you included I actually originally included it in the piece that I wrote for Dirt, but it didn't end up making the final cut. But you're talking about why you love his music and you're like, they're simple songs. It's language of the heart stuff, but it's deeply resonant to me personally. I find myself relating to them and considering my own dark nights of the soul and sort of clinging to this aspirational notion of hope and that the hope stuff feels hard won for him. Yeah, I mean, in a way that's me doing... I probably do this with a lot of artists that I like. You sort of do projection and you kind of see yourself in them. But in, in talking to Hinckley, he confirmed that. He said that with, with some of these songs, he was, you know, writing them from a place of feeling genuinely hopeful. And with others, it was, it was more aspiring to it. And I don't know. I think... If there's a theme worth, worth making art about, that's as good as any. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, one factor that I think has been absent from the conversations around him in mental health is the notion of music and just art as expression in general as a constructive and therapeutic outlet for mental illness or, you know, whatever manifestations, emotional manifestations against society might arise. We're talking about him performing and being a musician in the most like capitalistic, like rock star consumption sense of the word and not as music as therapy and healing. Yeah, that's a really good point because, you know, he's been writing these songs over the course of the last however many decades, 
you know, not as a means to some end of like fame and fortune, but doing it because it, it kind of burns in him and he has to, you know, and he wants to, and yeah, making art is therapeutic, you know, it's a very healthy thing to do. And, uh, I thought it was interesting when some Reagan affiliated group or something that said they don't think he should be able to have a career doing music after doing what he did. And I guess it remains to be seen if he even can have a career doing it. I guess now we're, yeah, we're talking about like the metrics that you were just talking about that really are less important and kind of miss the point, but what would they rather him do to, to make, make a living? Yeah, it was the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. They said they were, quote, saddened and concerned that John Hinckley Jr. will soon be unconditionally released and intends to pursue a music career for profit, which is kind of, you know, I guess obviously like people from the Reagan this institute probably are not familiar with venues like Market Hotel, but it's like a, you know, it's a community space. It's, it's a small room. It's not Madison Square Garden. Yeah, right. But, but still, you know, like he's known as the guy who tried to assassinate a sitting American president. Were you at all worried about like publishing an interview with him or like what the response would be? I wasn't. I, <laughs> I was more worried about it, it happening. I because I, I kind of didn't think it would. Like I said, I'm a fan of the music and I find him interesting and I really wanted to talk to him. And there were a few just kind of hurdles that, that came up along, along the way that made me think that the interview might not happen at all. Down to the last minute when we were scheduled to do, do the interview and I had checked with his manager the day before and made sure he was okay with using Zoom, that he was comfortable using Zoom, that he knew how to use Zoom. And his manager said yes. And then a couple hours before we were scheduled to do the interview, his manager wrote to me and said, he doesn't want to use Zoom. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. We can just talk on the phone. And then she said, he doesn't want to do the interview now. He, or he wants to postpone it or move it or something like that. I forget exactly what I said back to her, but it was something to the effect of, you know, John, John said, he'd do this and I think he should do it. And you can tell him I said that. And like 15 minutes later, I got a, got a phone call from him, but yeah, it was like, after it was published that I got, I guess, a little nervous about possible worst faith interpretations of the thing or my motivations for doing it. But like, I'm happy with the interview, you know, so I was able to reconcile that, you know, anxiety or whatever pretty quickly. And I'm glad I did it. We are too. It's a great read. Thank you. I appreciate that. So you mentioned in the interview, you know, that you tried to set up a show with him in California and a bunch of venues declined. And then 
Of course, the three shows he did manage to book this summer are all canceled, including the ones at Market Hotel in Brooklyn, which Emily also wrote about in her piece. So I'm curious what you both make of these cancellations and what does the controversy surrounding these shows tell us about the state of discourse? You want to go ahead, Emily? I read your piece, by the way, this morning, and it was it was really good. Oh, thank you. Sure. I was actually assigned a piece by Dirt on John Hinckley's unconditional release and like, you know, launching of his music career. And then when the cancellation started happening, it obviously became the story. I wrote mostly about Market Hotel because that's also the scene that I'm closest to. I was like very involved in the scene around the Market Hotel when I was younger. And when I read the statement, I just automatically read it with like left wing brain where I was like, okay, someone in this community, which is very liberal and progressive, found something problematic about this. So I thought of all the reasons why, like, despite left wing perspective of, well, it's important once somebody has been involved in the criminal justice system to give them a second chance and allow them to show that they have grown. And there was some reasons why this could not happen in John Hinckley's case. And so I was like, okay, I know that he had this unhealthy obsession with Jodie Foster and he was stalking her at her dormitory at Yale. Like maybe this is something that would make women or LGBT people feel unsafe or, you know, gun violence, like the crime that he committed was opening fire in front of a hotel in Washington, D.C. And we're in a very, very hot button time about gun control right now. So because the statement was a bit vague, I was just, you know, trying to figure out what was going on. And then I looked into it deeper and realized that it, it seemed that the majority of the outrage against the show wasn't coming from the left. It was actually coming from the right. And this venue that, you know, I think of as like serving a very niche and self-selecting audience had become like an obsession on the part of, you know, Fox News, Breitbart, all kinds of right-wing media outlets. I think Fox News wrote like five articles about it. Breitbart wrote six. The New York Post jumped on it, obsessively detailing every aspect of this. And then as the venue was trying to like use Twitter to defend the booking, they would then like reprint what they said. And then that would become a new article. And it became this whole like, you know, sensationalized issue. And that's not something I'm really used to happening that much, like from the scene that I kind of like came up in. But yeah, that's where I landed after after looking into it. And I have more to say, but I want to hear what Max has to say. Yeah, it was interesting because the majority of the shares, or at least a, a lot of the ones that I saw on Twitter and that people would send send to me, like from Facebook and stuff, were Fox outlets that I think probably wanted to do just that, gin up outrage about it. Yeah, I mean, you brought up a really good point, which is that after a person has paid what, you know, uh, we'll say charitably, because this doesn't apply in every case, people are incarcerated for, you know, things they didn't do all the time. They're unfairly incarcerated. But, you know, someone like Hinckley went away for 
decades. You know, he paid a pretty steep price for what he did, served the time that the court mandated, got the requisite mental health help, and lived with, you know, incredible restrictions on, on his freedom for a really long time. And so, you know, when people are, are through serving their time and they re-enter society to have all of their options for employment and not, not just employment, but in Hinckley's case, yeah, being able to pursue art, which, you know, for him maybe will end up paying the bills. I don't know that it is now, you know, I sort of doubt it is, but do things that are gratifying to them and that are healthy for them and give them a kind of like a healthy sense of self. If they're closed off from those options, then, you know, recidivism becomes far more likely, I think. So you like using Hinckley as symbolically for a second. I think it's important that once people re-enter society, they're, they're able to find employment and pursue things that are worthwhile to them. I want to say that I do understand why in this context, like these shows were canceled, not saying that he can never perform, but I do understand on the venue side why in a way, because when this kind of like intense outrage machine like sets its sight on something, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, I, I looked it up, like there are people making threats like against the venue, posting pictures of the venue's front door. And like, I, I, I also used to work in the music events business. I co-founded a company. And like, if there's any chance of like somebody getting hurt or, a th you know, if a threat is made, you have no choice. Like you have to cancel yeah. the show. Yeah, I didn't know about that. I didn't realize that they were receiving threats from people. And yeah, I mean, I, I completely get that. If they felt they couldn't keep their workers or concert goers safe or that there was, you know, a chance that they couldn't, then yeah, I understand. I understand their decision too. Also, you know, in, in Bushwick recently, for example, there was like a literal like arson attack, like just four minutes away, like down the street from this venue, there was like an arson attack against a venue that was like an LGBT venue. We don't know, you know, what exactly the circumstances of that were, but if you have like right wing people making threats against a venue that is, you know, they host a lot of like LGBT centric, POC centric programming these days, probably more than they used to do in the past. And like, you just have to take that seriously. Yeah. But the tragedy to me is that the discourse is such that, you know, this is what had to happen and that there were threats and that, you know, the way that the culture war has played out creates an environment where it is just impossible for someone like John Hinckley to just play a little show in a, on a community stage. Right, right. And the other irony here is that, you know, it, it's people on the right who bang on about cancel culture being, you know, 
a problem and, you know, whoever their particular heroes are who might be under scrutiny for something or other coming to their defense. But yeah, I mean, what they did was like cancel an artist's show because they, they did cancel culture to him basically, you know? Yeah. And when we think about cancel culture as this thing that arose in lieu of, among other things, a broken justice system for better and very much for worse. In this case, justice, like, you know, this is not everybody's view, but in this case, like, justice had been served. Like, the justice system did it, and this man put in his time, like, however you feel about it, according to the United States, you know? Yes. But they still want to continue to, I mean, they literally canceled his shows. To say nothing of, like, can we just take a moment to appreciate the sheer irony of making threats against a venue for having a show with somebody that committed violence like like to stop that person whose violence decades ago you feel your way about never mind bad rabbit hole but (laughs) but you know what i'm saying just the irony of yes like making making threats like you know emotional or violent they were violent threats right emily i mean yeah you can you can see them on Twitter. Right. Threats by nature are violent. So, you know, committing violence to stop somebody that you have a problem with for their violence. I mean, it's just like, it's broken. Their discourse is broken. And the extreme irony also, which I felt was important to mention in the piece, you know, when he tried to assassinate Reagan, like this was not a political act at all. Like he was trying to impress Jodie Foster and kind of emulate Travis Bickle. Right. This is not a politically motivated act. And it was funny because the statement that Market Hotel released had this quote that was like, there is a time when a place could host a thing like this, maybe a little offensive, and the reaction would be, it's just a guy playing a show. Who does it hurt? It's a free country. We aren't living in a free country anymore, for better or for worse. And that quote was kind of what made me think initially that this is like, oh, this is like the left canceling itself. Man, that's what I thought too. Yeah, but then it's actually not even that. It's the right that is not allowing people to live in a free country anymore or saying, you know, can't understand. It's just a guy playing a show. Who does it hurt? So it's wild. And I think that the entire incident does sort of like fit within the tenure of just like the increasingly aggressive tactics of the right in general (laughs) these days. Right. Right. Yeah. Just anything goes. There's no, they may even see those contradictions and just not care because it really is, it really is war. You know, it really is. Yeah. And it is really funny to ascribe politics to, I mean, I guess it's understandable if you just look at the incident, but like the most cursory dive into the assassination attempt and his motivations for it, you see that there was no politics about it whatsoever. There's so many contradictions, you kind of lose track, but I, I don't think the right is necessarily unaware of them. I just think it's like no holds barred. Any way you can hurt the opposing side, you, you do it, even if you're kind of going against the tenets of your professed ideology. Yeah. Any way you can hurt the opposing side you do it and then accuse the opposing side of doing it to you (laughs) right 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 right. yeah exactly and also you know like you were saying about the 
you know, this was very much the product of untreated mental illness. Like in so many ways, it's like Hinckley should be the poster child for the gun nuts on the right that are beating the mental illness drum, you know? Yes, I know. Thanks for saying that. I tried to like make that point kind of during another interview I did, but it was like totally the wrong place to sort of make that point. Mm -hmm. And I didn't do it very well. But yeah. I mean, just back to like what we were saying, what we were all talking about earlier in the conversation. I think it's, it's, it's safe to say we have all dealt with, had or have mental illness. You know, imagine mm -hmm. being uh, beholden to your worst moment, even though we've all, you know, done work on it and, and learned to live with it in positive ways, you know? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Forever and ever, 40 years later after doing that work. And I think that's probably a big part of the reason why John's music resonates with me, too, is like, yeah, I mean, when I was like at my craziest pre-therapy with the hit and run stuff, I was like... I thought billboards were talking to me and shit. I think it was like a video game or something that they were advertising at the time. And the, these billboards said left for dead on them. And I was like, you couldn't convince me that that wasn't like some cosmic sign that I was killing people with my car. Oh, man. Like long way of saying like. There before the grace of God go I, you know, it's like Hinckley very much had very, very grave mental illness. And I sympathize with that. You know, among all of these layers of irony we've been talking about, maybe the biggest one is the fact that Hinckley was calling this string of dates, tour dates, the redemption tour. Right. What do you consider to be redemption? No, it's a really good question. And it's, it's one that I wanted to ask John and that I did ask John. Yeah, there's this kind of protestant i guess idea of redemption you know you sort of need to convince the world your your perceivers or something that you've that you've been redeemed i don't think so i mean that's not the way that i view redemption i think it's 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 an inside job so to speak or inner work that you do and no one can really confirm that you have been redeemed but you you know and i don't think as Hinckley said, you know, your neighbor down the street needs to be the person to decide whether, whether or not you've been redeemed. I think if you're living differently and you've done work to get better and to not do whatever behaviors you were doing, whether they were self-injurious or injurious to others, I think you can count yourself redeemed. That's the way I see it. Mm, that's very eloquently put. In context of what we've been talking about, you know, namely cancel culture, the culture wars, the, I don't know, disintegration of democracy in the American justice system, is is redemption, whether in the internal definition you were talking about or maybe in broader, like, socially perceived definitions, is redemption or forgiveness even possible in 2022? And if not, what is getting in the way? Or maybe it is possible. I don't know that it is possible as defined in the way that I wouldn't define it. <laughs> it sort of depends on the situation, but I think that kind of has to be okay. And I think maybe a sign that one has redeemed themselves is if they can kind of realize that, that it's okay if people 
remain furious with me forever. Or again, I'm going back to this other definition that maybe some people don't operate under, but I think needing the world to confirm and agree that you've been redeemed, although you, you couldn't fault someone for it. Of course, that's what an individual would want, but not sort of demanding it is maybe part of, part of the exercise and realizing that, you know, people don't have to like you. People don't have to forgive you. Yeah, I think when we talk about redemption, especially in context of cancel culture, it is in a very capitalistic sense that has like very, you know, real life, like material consequences. And that's sort of what if we're going to talk about cancel culture is the antithesis to redemption. I think we've we've traded redemption for separation or like yeah. social nimbyism, you know? Yeah, it's maybe symptomatic of how atomized and lonely people feel. <laughs> Can either of you think of an example in like, I don't know, let's say the past decade of someone being redeemed? It doesn't have to even be a public figure, but when was the last time that y'all encountered redemption? Like measured how though? Like, do you mean like someone who got removed from their job and then was able to start working in their field again? Yeah, or maybe in just internally coming to that with themselves. But yeah, I guess in this context, maybe I do mean in a public sense. Because certainly, certainly having served four decades, one would think that he did the definition of redemption. Right. That that ought to get him there. Yeah, I mean, in the sense you're talking about, I guess, the public perception version of redemption with most of the figures who have been canceled Barring the ones who, you know, someone like Harvey Weinstein or people who did like, you know, criminal acts. I'm thinking of like someone like Louis C.K. And there are probably a bunch of other examples like this that aren't leaping to my mind. But um, like people who grotesquely abuse their power to hurt others. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, he's fine. I mean, he he may have lost a show opportunity or I forget exactly what he had going on at the time that all of that stuff arose, but he's very much working and making money. And I think there's like a twisted kind of element to this that does, again, it's like when we're talking about cancel culture, we really are talking about capitalism. I mean, it, it's bosses that end up doing the canceling, whether that's because they're seeing a lot of noise on social media or whatever else. But there's this sort of twisted way in which it's become a commodity in and of itself, where I think probably for stand-up comedians, especially where it's like a currency kind of, and people are able to sort of like stoke their Patreons that way because they have either been quote unquote canceled or they sort of dangle the threat of themselves possibly being canceled. So you as their fan are doing freedom or something by continuing to subsidize their life. I like doing freedom. <laughs> I guess I think of redemption as like making peace in a way. Mm -hmm. 
it's not even eye for an eye. It's just sort of finding, I don't know, spiritual equilibrium. And I th- I don't know if that's ever been possible under the prison industrial complex. Yeah. You know, slash its capitalistic counterparts. Right. It's something that might happen in spite of systems on an individual basis and something that can't necessarily be confirmed or disconfirmed by the public, probably. It's funny because like most of the time when I think of people who have been like capitalistically redeemed or whatever, it's more like people just disappearing long enough and then randomly reappearing with no discussion of like what right. like Louis C.K., Aziz Ansari, people like that. So Hinckley is one of many artists who people sometimes call an outsider artist or part of the so-called outsider music category. Are you a fan of artists that fit into this category? Like, did you have a background or knowledge of it? Or did you just kind of connect with Hinckley's music? No, I wasn't aware of that term till I read your piece. Yeah, I don't seek out artists like that i mean i do i do think ariel pink has made some great songs um (laughs) and i'm sure there are other artists that you know are problematic or whatever that i'd say the same about but no i think i have to like the music just because someone did a thing (laughs) that's terrible doesn't make me want to listen to them or look at whatever they made just because of that yeah it's kind of a complicated category, which is what I was kind of trying to unpack a little bit with my piece, that there's like people who listen to the music of Charles Manson and also people who listen to music by people who are known to have had psychological disabilities, intellectual disabilities. There are people who listen to music that is associated with very, very subversive political acts, like this one band I talk about, Les Ralizés, Denudet. Their bassist was involved in the hijacking of a flight in Japan and rerouted it to North Korea. I think it's a problematic category in many ways. It can be very othering. It's connected with like the outsider art movement, which has this sort of, you know, weird legacy of people profiting off of works of people who you know, may not be able to always give full consent or there's just something that kind of sits weirdly about it, especially when like the people making money off the music are not the artists themselves. But I do think it's interesting that like artists have been interested in Hinckley since like back in the 80s, like when this stuff happened, like Devo made a song that was like based on one of his poems. There were like other no wave artists that made music that was inspired by him. And I'm just I was just curious, like, if you think that, is there something, like, intrinsically human about, like, being drawn to people who have these challenges or who have done, you know, things that feel outside of the scope of, like, normative human behavior? Yeah, it's interesting. This might sound funny. I do think, like, rock and roll music, good songs. I don't know. It sort of does in a way, like offer a kind of forgiveness for being human. I guess saying like rock and roll in the broadest possible way, 
you know, everything from like, I don't know, like mayhem, they popped to mind. I don't know if they'd be considered outsider, but one of those band members like ate the other band member or something like that to like Pantera to Tom Petty, what's talked about or, or sung about. It's sort of like, whether it's hard on sleeve or like demons on sleeve or whatever else, there's something there to me. It's like when I identify with a song, when it makes you feel less alone, I guess like someone like Hinckley has probably felt as lonely as a person can possibly feel, you know? And if maybe there's something there, like if the person singing the song has like suffered in a particular way, maybe that makes their ability to kind of, I'm not saying healing in some like yoga way here, but like maybe that does give them kind of a unique ability to touch people. Maybe certain types of people find solace in that. They totally hear that. I think there's also been, you know, culturally like a long association between artistic genius and so-called madness even if you think about like you know religious art like i was thinking of like the ecstasy of saint Teresa. like some people think that she's having like an orgasm or something but it could also be read as just like this woman is having this like extreme potentially like breakdown psychologically and it is viewed as like being closer to god mm -hmm. so yeah i wonder if there's just some like intrinsic human tendency to be drawn to people who are sort of experiencing something very very extreme or sort of breaking down you know normative experience i don't know yeah I think there's probably, probably some truth to that. If this genre is called outsider music, these are people who are living on or outside the margins of polite society. They're separate, they're apart from, and I think we all have that in us. We all have that feeling of separateness in us and look for an antidote to that. And we look to relate with that. In that vein. Does outsider music still look and mean the same thing in 2022? Has it evolved from the conceptions we have of it, like Daniel Johnston or Wesley Willis, that sort of thing? Or does it take on a new form in this particular dystopian hellscape? <laughs> I think personally that there's like all kinds of reasons why that was, you know, an offensive category. It's so just inherently othering of other people's experience. There's an inside and there's an outside. I think also like outsider art as a category. I mean, it wasn't just, for example, doctors who were featuring the art that their patients made in art therapy. It was that, but it was also, you know, sometimes non-Western art would make it into that category, would be billed as outsider. Yeah, it sort of sounds like how are people appreciating this stuff? You know, are they like mocking it? Is there an element of that, of like sort of laughing at or something, or is it resonant to them spiritually or whatever? Right. Max, do you ever feel like an outsider artist? 
or is there an element <laughs> of outsider music to Eve Six, like particularly um, since y'all have uh, quote re-entered the chat? Um, no, uh, it's weird to talk about Eve Six because it's kind of a couple different things. You know, like a lot of guys from bands will have their band that pays the bills and then they'll have like their side project where they do all, all the shit they want to do. And maybe it's not as commercially successful or whatever, but it's gratifying to them. And we're sort of doing that within the same band <laughs> in this weird way. It's sort of like our catalog is the day job and we play those songs live and stuff. And then the music that we're making now won't get played on the radio. Well, you know, we're, we're making like cocaine rock songs and like LARPing is a punk band in places <laughs> and like, you know, and we're kind of treating it as a side project and it's a lot of fun. So I guess in a sense, <laughs> I don't think it, it works under the definition that you talk about in the piece necessarily or whatever, but it is this weird thing where there's sort of two things happening at once. It's sort of like Eve six present day is in a way a side project, but it's under the same moniker. Hmm. That does sound kind of outsider to me, or maybe yeah. just deeply, deeply music industry insider and broadcasting from within. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what it is. I think um I think maybe it's just punk. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I think it's just that. I mean, that's sort of been my line like on stage before we play these new songs is like, you know, we're doing this thing now where we're kind of larping as a punk band in a vacuum and we're we're really enjoying it. You know, this song's called I Want to Bite Your Face or whatever. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're the one who narrates your own story, but I could maybe see what Andrea is saying, applying in the sense that like, you know, Andrea and I, we grew up with your music playing on the radio. You were a very household name kind of act. And then you don't expect that act to, one, you know, start making very, very different kind of music. And two, to on social media become so outspoken in this extremely leftist and very real way and i think that's incredible and cool but i wanted to ask have you always been a leftist or did you have like a realization at some point where your views evolved and everything clicked i have such a, a basic answer to that question and it's uh no like no i mean i i was not political at all I mean, you know, we made those first three Eve Six records when we were very, very young. I did not care or think about much other than myself. <laughs> For me, left politics began with Bernie round one. I mean, that's really where the kind of scale started to fall from my eyes. And I started to probably just through becoming open to it, learn more and just, you know, being alive right now, what that entails, looking around. I think those kind of simple factors converged. My guitar player too, John Siebels, he was earlier than me on all this stuff and he's been doing like activism for a long time. So he probably had a hand in 
<laughs> radicalizing me, but yeah, pretty basic Bernie bro. <laughs> when you started becoming so outspoken about these views online, why do you think it resonated so much? I think probably the way that you just articulated it, the fact that people maybe didn't expect <laughs> a band like us or something to think a certain way, whether, you know, politically or in other ways too. I think my sense of humor was probably kind of surprising to people. I'm not saying I'm really funny, but I'm saying it, when I am funny in the ways that I am funny, I think that there was something kind of psychedelic about that for people. Very psychedelic. <laughs> well, yeah, I think probably that was part of it. I think the fact that it was confusing to people was probably part of it. And I, that's cool. You know, I started kind of using the, the Eve six Twitter account as this, like, I don't know, in a way, sort of an art project, sort of doing this like rigorous honesty thing and by performative, sure, but also just kind of like being myself and saying what I think. And I think who I am and what I think was kind of surprising to people probably because like you said, you knew my band or, you know, me as a proxy to it from a song on the radio and had your, your associations about that. And that was a record that I made that I wrote when I was a teenager, recorded when I was a teenager shit. And I'm a 43 year old guy now. So a very different person than I was back then. It's not super normal. I guess that's why. I mean, there aren't a lot of other 90s bands, I guess, who are leftists. I mean, there should be. I think a lot of people out there have gone through the same or similar kind of political awakening in the last, you know, eight years or so. And I think that's a big part of it. I think Bernie brought to the fore some of these socialist ideas and just the rank you know, rampant corporate nature of our two-party political system. So I think people responding to that, I think it was them saying, oh, I agree, or where people weren't necessarily versed in left politics, but have found themselves going, oh yeah, that makes, that makes sense. But, um, I do think people were confused by it. And I think people like to be confused. I like to be confused. I mean, I like to be confused by art, by, by music, by movies, by literature. That's often what gives an artwork a transcendent quality to me is when it makes me like kind of feel like I'm dreaming or something and I can't quite figure everything out. And I'm not saying that our Twitter account or whatever this version of our band is, is necessarily that. But I think most things are pretty easy to name and kind of like put in a little box. And I think maybe people appreciated the fact that they didn't know what to do with this, you know? Speaking of activism or leftism, you're one of the few musicians we can think of who has achieved such a mainstream level of success, but is also specifically so outspoken in their support of the fight for a penny per stream and 
the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. How have the same issues that are affecting these independent artists who are behind this union affected you? And why do you think there are so few people with your level of name recognition who are speaking out against Spotify and other streaming platforms? I think a lot of bigger artists are honestly probably just too comfortable to really give too much of a shit. I think people like at the very top who are making millions and millions of dollars and probably have the clout and power to, I would imagine, be able to renegotiate terms of their contract so that they're getting a piece of the master and making more money per stream than a band like us who signed our deal before the technology was even invented. I think some of them are, are too big to care. I think artists that are more in the medium before, you know, using capitalist metrics range of success are probably worried about Spotify. I don't know, pissing off people at Spotify, not getting on playlists, stuff like that. And I don't blame artists for not pulling their music off Spotify. Spotify is the household name. It's the way that people hear music right now. And artists who are like getting started out or trying to sustain a career at a working class level need it if they want people to hear their music they they kind of have to be on there so i don't fault artists for that or blame them for that it would be nice to have more who would who would come out and and call out spotify for what it is but i also understand why they don't yeah i mean real talk like we just published a playlist on our substack today and it's a spotify playlist yeah. But we spend so much time on this podcast, like railing against Spotify. And Emily and I even talked about it beforehand. I was like, should we do this on Tidal? And it was like, well, not enough people really have Tidal. Like, you know? No, I look, I totally get it. And like, we're going to get a bunch of shit for this probably. But we did take the music, our newer stuff, which isn't very much. It's like one EP that we put out like a year ago and a couple singles. We pulled them from Spotify and it's like, okay, so, you know, this new music that we're making that we really like and that we just made it and we're proud of it, we want people to hear it. They're now unable to hear it on the one place where people really listen to music and Spotify still has and is profiting off of the old stuff that generates like millions of, of streams for them. So it's like, who are we fucking hurting? Like we're literally only hurting ourselves. Exactly. Um, so I think with this new record, we're going to put it up on Spotify and just, you know, do our best to share links from Apple or Tidal or whatever. But yeah, it's like you said, even that most people aren't on those apps because they're not as good. I mean, Spotify has the better fucking interface and all of that shit. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. totally fractured otherwise. Yeah. It's the issue of network effects that when too many people are on one platform, you can't really escape it or like boycotts stop really being able to make an impact. So you need they to do stop. nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They, they, boycotts don't do anything. So <laughs> <laughs> resistance is futile. I don't know. But I, I do think it's interesting that you would see a common thread between, you know, your experiences as someone who's been in the game much longer than many of the people who started Uma, for example, like what, what do you see as that common fabric between your experiences? 
That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, we're all asking for the same thing, you know, which is a, a penny per stream and for Spotify to make public the backroom deals that it made with record companies, wherein they gave a company like Sony, who owns the Eve 6 masters, ownership in Spotify. So there's a trust of corporations who are like in bed with each other, like double profiting off of artists. So there are other artists who are not independent, who are sounding off about this, but they're, they are artists who signed deals in the nineties. I know that bands that sign with major labels now, just under like normal circumstances without having a whole crazy amount of clout that they're bringing from YouTube shit that they've generated on their own or whatever else, or some TikTok stuff. Um, they're signing the same shitty record deals, but I do wonder if artists that are closer to the top of that hierarchy are able to get better deals for themselves and that that's why they're not being loud about it. Speaking of exploitative tech platforms, what's your relationship with Twitter like? I mean, obviously, you're a heavy presence on it and a welcome one, but I'm curious, what keeps you engaged with it? You know, do you ever just want to delete it and like throw away your phone? Yeah, totally. I, I have that impulse probably like once a month where I'm like, well, what am I doing here enough? But I do enjoy it. I do enjoy being able to sound off and say what I think and tell dumb jokes. I do have fun on there, but compared to the way that I was using it in like the first year of being on it, where I was probably posting like 60, 70 times a day, <laughs> it, you know, it was pretty, pretty manic. So I give myself more space these days. I still do post an awful lot, but it's not to that level. And I think having the column too, having another form to put some writing in has been nice because I think I was sort of treating it as sometimes doing almost like long form shit with a character limit. And I don't know why anyone still follows me after some of that stuff. What's sort of been the appeal for you, especially considering, you know, like 95% of the discourse on there is a dumpster fire? I think I really enjoy like forging a thought, whether it's something funny or something more serious or whatever, within the limitations of the website for maximum impact. I, I get a kick out of that. You know, I feel like I have something to say. So in that way, it's awesome and useful. I've made real friends on there. I've discovered really cool people, cool writers, bands. Um, I also love attention, you know, like I'm a fucking, I still have whatever that artist narcissist shit is in me, you know, and I need to sort of keep an eye on that a little bit because I think that can veer into 
pathological areas if you really let it go wild. You know, I've said stuff on there that I wish I had in. Like, you know, I went from not posting at all to, like I said, posting like an insane amount of times a day, every single day for like closing in on, on two years now. And I think part of the reason why I enjoy it and why people respond favorably to it some of the time is because I don't really put a filter on it and I will often publish, <laughs> you know, whatever fucking inane thought is drifting through my head at the time. But yeah, it's this sort of weird balance thing that I probably still aspire to. I don't think I've still quite figured it out because I'm like, I'm also an addict, right? And it's highly addictive. So some days I'm better than others at being like, okay, I need to put this thing down and like live real life for a minute. There's so many sort of seemingly contradictory things about fucking Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Totally. We very much do. One like existential moment I had recently was when I was on Twitter and I was like, man, it's so weird. It's like I spend all day on Twitter listening to what lefty people are saying and all the lefty people are spending all day on this platform. But like, man, shouldn't they all be against this platform? Like, how did we all get so into this platform? Like, is the platform is the joke on us ultimately? Yeah, yeah. I mean, someone did a tweet like that a while back, which was something to the effect of if it was possible to change anything on here, they wouldn't let us do it or something like that. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know. There's such a tendency and a temptation to like throw the baby out with the bathwater. I want to do it too. I want to like both diminish Twitter probably unfairly and sometimes give it more import than it probably has. Mm. Um, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle and you, you can't deny that it is a way to communicate ideas and reach people. I've probably had my mind changed on there. I'm sure I have, you know, and that's not nothing. And I do think something about, you know, a lot of the other like bigger leftist accounts or whatever, they're very much speaking to the choir, I think because of the history of our band and because of like the way I use the account, mm -hmm. I do think we have maybe a different opportunity to reach people who aren't necessarily, you know, steeped in some of these ideas. I would at least like to think so. Yeah. Right. And cause you're also equally unafraid to hold up a mirror to the left at times. I mean, like, I mean, by that, I mean a critical mirror. Yeah. 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 Again, it sounds contradictory when I say like, I'm just being honest on there because it's performance too. You know, it is, it's like, it's both. But if there is like a guiding principle there for the way I use it, it's that it's sort of this like rigorous honesty thing. I'm going to say what I think in a given moment, maybe I'll regret it in a, in a month or something like that. But if it's political, I'm not, I mean, my politics have theory behind it. I'm not saying there's things I can't learn or that I won't change my mind about stuff, but the fundaments are there. What do you think the left could learn? 
when when you refer to the left, are you referring to the actual left or like Democrat, your garden variety, like liberal ideology? I guess the latter. Yeah. In context of that question, I think we've referred to it in both ways over the course of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think people have just been so lassoed into this capitalist realist perspective, believing that civics as they exist now, the two parties are like this fixed and immovable divine thing. And you pick a side, red or blue. And I think that's what they want you to think. I mean, I know you guys know this, but in, in terms of like my critiques online of Democrats or whatever, I see Democrats and Republicans as being functionally the same with maybe a difference in rhetorical tone for the most part. And so I say that pretty repetitively in different ways because I think it's important. And I do get a lot of liberals getting mad at me and saying, oh, well, what's your solution? I think identifying the problem is pretty important. You know, it kind of has to come first. And I liken it to the recovery process. It's, it's uh, mm -hmm. until you can kind of admit and see the problem for what it is, there's not a whole lot that you can do about it. So what other people see as sort of fatalistic or when they call my political stuff fatalistic or, or whatever, like, I, I don't think it is. I think it's productive to point this stuff out. And I don't think real change can happen under this duopoly where these two parties run controlled opposition with one another to protect the corporate donor class, you know, to enrich themselves um, so they can continue to do insider trading and all of the stuff that they both do, regardless of what side they're on. Um, so it's late capitalism is, is the problem and Democrats are not the solution. And again, I know that uh, you guys probably agree with me on this stuff, but I, that's where when I'm, you know, talking shit to the libs, that's what I'm <laughs> banging on about. No, it's true. Like when I talk to family members who are like centrist Democrats, sometimes it's just like, oh, wow, your beliefs in terms of economic systems are really, really, really far away from mine. Like you're basically pro-capitalism. It's so funny because I literally, yeah, well, I, I just, I had to send a text to a family thread that I was on recently and I said something similar. Basically just, we have very different views of economics and what systems work and are good and which ones don't and are bad. And we're probably not going to change each other's minds here. So I'm not one of those people who believes in cutting off family members and shit because they have different political views. But like when the family thread turns into a, to like a hostile Facebook comment fest, it's like, fuck that. And, you know, we're heading into a very, very high stakes time politically with the terms and everything. It's a terrifying time. It's really scary because... It's fertile ground for really, really bad ideas, really dangerous ideas to, I mean, they've already taken root, but to flourish and gain momentum. I, I don't have any 
sunshine. You, you don't have too. a quick fix for us? <laughs> I, don't, I don't have the quick fix. Yeah. <laughs> the Eve 6 guy doesn't have the fucking quick fix. Artists are not supposed to provide prescriptions unless it's like for their own, like Spotify stuff. Maybe that's not true, but it's not the artist's job to provide prescriptions. It's asking the questions. Yeah. It's asking the questions and saying, look at those fucking, <laughs> you know, enemy ranks. Like, look at the silhouette on the, you know, on the mountaintop. They're fucking. Y'all seeing this too? <laughs> are y'all seeing this too? And people are like, nope. <laughs> I like help people see the world that they're living in more clearly sometimes. Yeah. Yes. So, wait, your memoir is Heart in a Blender, correct? Like, that is the title. Yeah. So breaking news. Um, I'm not going to write that. I'm not going to write a memoir. I, I just, yeah, I, I just told my publisher yesterday and he's really cool about it and gets it. Um, I don't want to write a memoir. I don't want to write like a rock bio. I, I probably should have figured this out before like signing a book deal and stuff, but I sort of, there was no way for me to know before I kind of attempted it. And I'm just not really interested in, in, mm. in, in doing that. I love writing and I might write a book one day, but it's not going to be a rock bio. I think there are parts of my story that are interesting and maybe I could figure out a way to, to tell it. But I don't think the story of the band is particularly interesting. And I'm not trying to say this in like a Twitter self-effacing way or anything. It's just the way I feel. And so I, I just, I don't want to put something out if it's not going to be good it, or if it's not going to be like an art project. I don't, I don't want to do it, you know? Writing a book is like an extremely agonizing process. So if your heart isn't into it or it doesn't feel right, that makes total, total sense. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I, I made the right decision and yeah, we'll, we'll see. I might do some, you know, prose thing at some point, but it won't be a rock bio. Yeah. Maybe, uh, what's that pop song? <laughs> the story is still unwritten. <laughs> <laughs> but what about your album? Or like your your next release musically, that's your next art project. Like, what's up with that? What's something you hope people will take away from it? No, totally. Uh, I I really love the music that we're making right now. Again, we're just like doing it for for us and having a really good good time doing it. I don't have commercial expectations for it, and that's probably part of why it's like gratifying and fun we put out a five song ep called grim value about a year ago that was like kind of an homage to our earlier kind of punk influences that never came through or didn't really come through on on eve six records and this one has some of that attitude but it's also a, a bit more psychedelic a bit more 60s in places mm. Like, um, some slowed down tempos and it's pretty sloppy in like a good way. And yeah, I'm excited about it. I think we're going to start putting out songs from it in like two months. Well, 
the inimitable Max Collins, thank you so much for your time and talking with us. Thank you guys so much for having me. This was this was really cool. I, I appreciate it. That's it for our show. Today's episode was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is composed by Mark Donica. To dig deeper, head to our Substack. We've got lots of links. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share us with friends or on your socials to help support independent journalism.